So we're going to uh, actually start with our message this morning. So if you have not already, I want you to, uh, and you've got your Bible, let's uh, grab that Bible. You're going to turn to Mark 9. If you use your phone to read, you can go to that section, uh, or you can go to your phone and the app on your phone and get to Mark 9. The story of the transfiguration, certainly a high point in the gospel narrative. And I can imagine the scene itself was quite disorienting. This is why we read the scripture in the way that we did. If you didn't know, Jeff was up, uh, kind of standing up in the balcony and reading it over. Maybe it didn't land like we quite wanted to. We wanted people to be looking around and wondering what was going on. Nobody really looked around. So uh, we'll maybe come back and try that again at a different point. <clears throat> we wanted to try to create this idea of a little bit of disorientation in the room just so you might have a bit of what the transfiguration could have felt like. It's one of these unique moments in the gospel where we get the f a glimpse of the full divinity of Jesus Christ. And the account is fascinating to me because amidst this incredible divine revelation, you get it contrasted with an incredibly human response from Peter. And I think this contrast serves to illustrate a few important things to us. Two main ideas that I'll be chasing after this morning. Here they are. The first is what I believe is a needed realization, and the second is a unique temptation, and how each of these things might impact our practice of faith. Before we do this, though, I think it can be helpful to look at a few kind of contextual aspects of the story. Things that when you can read kind of more through that Hebrew worldview of the first century, maybe give the story a bit of a different shape uh, or uh, a bit of a different understanding, okay? So uh, let's get into this stuff first. And really in the first sentence, we see how things are connected to the context in which they live. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him, okay? These are Jesus's kind of main guys. We already know that just by reading the Gospels, but more so than them just being his main guys, the presence of three is really, really important. Because in Old Testament law, it was stipulated that three witnesses needed to be present to testify to the truth of any situation. Given the reality that this is not part of Jesus' public ministry, but rather kind of a more personal personal and divine experience, Jesus is careful to make sure that this moment could be passed on as a true event. Since the story would be told and retold and passed down through generations, questioning this account would become increasingly difficult because three witnesses could bear testimony to its truthfulness. I imagine this to be a bit of a calculated move on the part of Jesus with the anticipation that the experience that they would have would already be quite unbelievable to those who were not present. Now, additionally, the mountaintop experience, like this one, these were important and foundational to Jewish understanding. It was on Mount Sinai that Moses receives the law from God in Exodus 19. In Mount Horeb, where Elijah, amidst all the powerful forces of nature, hears the whisper of God. So not only does Jesus's mountaintop transfiguration parallel these experiences from the earlier Old Testament figures, but the figures themselves are present. Moses and Elijah, heroes in the Hebrew worldview, 
representative of two foundational elements of their belief system. Moses represents the law, and Elijah, the prophecy, both of which point to a coming Messiah and a fulfillment of God's original intention. And in this way, these two figures appearing in this incredible moment, standing next to Jesus, would have assured the reader or the listener through the oral tradition of the preeminence of Christ. And the overarching narrative of God's work continuing through him. So God uses the Hebrew understanding and these historical similarities to draw attention to the importance of this event and the centrality of who Jesus is. Now, I think these few historical kind of contextual points can center us a bit in this story. I think they actually might even help us to understand Peter's response in the moment a little bit more. And they provide context enough for us to draw out these two main points that I mentioned earlier. And so here is the first one. A realization that we all need to be reminded of. And it's this. Jesus isn't always who we want him to be. Jesus isn't always who we want him to be. Now, the more I read the Gospels, the more I get the impression that the disciples were often let down because Jesus was not who they imagined him to be. I pick that up in this story as well. We know that Moses and Elijah are arguably the two most important figures in the Jewish faith, and the fact that they appear in the story undergirds the importance of Jesus. But Peter's desire to build three tents highlights his misbelief that Jesus is their equal. From the Hebrew perspective, which Peter would have very much held, the coming Messiah was often imagined to be a figure of dominating power. A man whose presence was known and felt around the world. Whose actions would bring evil empires to their knees. Releasing the captive Israel from their oppressors. Their hoped for Messiah looked a lot more like the kings and emperors from their historical neighboring nations. Than the divine figure of Jesus standing right before them. And due to his understanding, and I think due to his desire, it was easy for Peter to maybe convince himself that Jesus was just another prophetic voice similar to that of Moses and Elijah. That Jesus was a man equipped to continue the lineage of God's sent messengers pointing to the ultimate reality of the Messiah to come. And so in this first century, offering hospitality to all three of the figures in the same way would have been a clear indication that there was no official guest of honor. They were all equal. Peter wanted his Messiah to be something different than what he was given. And so he creates his own belief, reducing Jesus to just the place that Moses and Elijah had already held. Because Jesus didn't fill what he had always imagined, Peter creates a new belief about who he is. This, I believe, is a consistent theme we see throughout the Gospels. Not simply misunderstanding, but a desire that Jesus would be something 
that he's not. A desire to see him more dominant. A desire for him to wield his power. A desire for him to strike down his opponents. A desire to see him conquer by any means necessary. And so we see this subtle and kind of ongoing push from the disciples for Jesus to conform to the world's standards around them and break the yoke of bondage that they felt by force. I don't think it's a stretch to say the Jesus that Peter wanted was not the Jesus that Peter got. And I would pause here and say, does any of that sound familiar to your own experience? Maybe wanting Jesus to be something he's not. Wanting a Jesus that fights for us with force. A Jesus that elevates us over others. A Jesus that offers power and influence. A Jesus that answers our prayers on our timing. I think we often want our Savior to look a lot like what the Hebrews wanted for their hoped-for Messiah, not the suffering servant that we were given. It can be tough to come to terms with this because the Jesus we follow is radically different than the world around that influences so much of our worldview, so much of our understanding. And yet this story gives us the exact moment when God makes clear who Jesus is. Moses and Elijah disappear, and it's only Jesus standing there and with a voice of God speaking over him, saying, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. God leaves no doubt with that statement. Not a messenger, not a prophet, not a warring hero, not a conquering empire or emperor. Jesus is God's son, the rightful heir, God incarnate, the full embodiment of divine love and grace. And with this realization, those listening in that moment all the way to us standing in this moment right now have to be willing to reconcile who we might want Jesus to be with the humble servant that we are given. And it forces us to question whether or not we have potentially overlooked certain aspects of the ministry and the teaching of Jesus just to try to hold on a little bit tighter to secure our preferred version of what we might think a Savior should be. In addressing this felt tension, Gregory Boyd says this, I'll suggest that the kingdom that Jesus came to establish is not from this world, for it operates differently than the governments of the world do. While all the versions of the kingdom of the world acquire and exercise power over others, the kingdom of God, incarnated and modeled in the person of Jesus Christ, advances only by exercising power under others. It expands by manifesting the power of self-sacrificial, Calvary-like love. To put it differently, the governments of the world seek to establish, protect, and advance their ideals and agendas. It's in the fallen nature of all those governments to want to win. By contrast, the kingdom of Jesus, established and modeled with his life, death, and resurrection, don't seek to win by any criteria 
the world would use. Rather, it seeks to be faithful. It demonstrates the reign of God by manifesting the sacrificial character of God, and in the process, it reveals the most beautiful, dynamic, and transformative power in the universe. It testifies that this power alone, the power to transform people from the inside out by coming under them, holds the hope of the world. Everything the church is about, I argue, hangs on preserving the radical uniqueness of this kingdom in contrast to the kingdom of the world. This is the profound realization of the transfiguration. He is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. With God's assurance that Jesus is his sent son, he is bringing Peter, James, and John back to this understanding of the reign which Jesus came to carry out and how it would be different than anything they could have ever imagined. Philippians 2 perfectly captures just how radical and different this reign would be, calling all of us to a new way and saying this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used on his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Like Peter, James, and John, we have to be continually brought back to this understanding of Jesus. Looking to the models and systems of our world, hoping that Jesus might just simply use them for good is not enough. For if we do not give ourselves to this understanding of Jesus as humble servant, then the outworking of our faith can easily be misaligned from God's heart. And this is where I believe we become susceptible to the temptation that we see in Peter. And here is our second point. The temptation to transform God rather than be transformed by God. Transformation is the crux of this whole story. In fact, transfiguration means a complete change in form or appearance. In the Greek, the word is metamorpho, and it carries this connotation of changing the outside to match that which is on the inside. And it's important to remember for the story, it's not Christ reflecting the radiance of God like Moses did in the Old Testament. It's the full divine reality of the triune God becoming apparent in the person of Jesus. Jesus' outward appearance changes to match his inward divinity. The story centers on Jesus' transformation, but the greatest applicative theological point we can glean from this story is the necessity for our transformation in light of who we know Jesus to be. Just as Jesus transforms in this moment, we too should seek transformation. But even when we come to realize who Jesus really is, it can be tempting to put our energies into trying to transform God into something that fits our box rather than availing ourselves to being transformed by
by God. Peter had been around Jesus long enough to know that his life was nomadic, that his purpose was his mission. They were always on the move. They were always on the go. And yet his conclusion on this mountaintop after this revelation is this. Rabbi, it seems good for us to be here. Let me set up camp. Let's stay a little while. In that moment, it was safe and comfortable. Peter wanted to stay on that mountain. That's not at all surprising. Peter wanted to stay longer in this heightened spiritual experience probably would have wanted to do the same. There he is on top of the mountain in the midst of something unbelievable. So why not offer to set up camp and secure this experience for a little while? Peter was hoping to convince Jesus to stay put. But we know, just as Peter did, that Jesus was never about safety. Jesus is never about security. Jesus is never about comfort. We know that Jesus and his kingdom are always on the move. Stanley Howarth says this, It's hard to remember that Jesus did not come to make us safe, but rather to make us disciples, citizens of God's new age, the kingdom of surprise. The act of trying to transform God into what we want him to be is perhaps our greatest temptation. I mean, can you imagine having a God that agrees with you on everything? A God that believes the same things that you believe? A God that doesn't question your thoughts or actions? A God that fits into your preconceived ideas of how the world should operate? A God that doesn't require anything beyond what you're willing to give? This proposition, this type of God is intoxicating to think about. But we have to confess the work done to try to transform God into something that fits our lives is poisoning our souls and destroying our witness to the world. A.W. Tozer many, many years ago said this about religion, but I think it fits when we talk about God. He says this, religion today is not transforming people Rather, it's being transformed by the people. It's not raising the moral level of society. It's descending to society's own level and congratulating itself that it has scored a victory because society is smilingly accepting its surrender. I think Peter's response in that moment, in that unbelievable moment, his response to set up camp shows us just how tempting it can be to find your place of comfort and try to pull God into owning that space with you. We see it in our lives when we try to transform God into being concerned about our financial security, we try to transform God into being a Democrat or a Republican, or maybe just a God that's partial to America. We see it in our lives when we try to transform God into being a God who agrees with us on who might be in or out. Maybe a God that just willingly disregards our apathy. A God that wouldn't ask us to sacrifice anything in our lives. These are all ways that we try to transform God, that we try to find our place of comfort and pull 
God in to holding that space with us. I believe either you are a person seeking to transform God into the thing you want God to be, or you are being transformed into the person that God wants you to be. There doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground in the life of a disciple. And so this is an incredible temptation that we need to acknowledge and root out in our lives. But let us remember that even though Peter's response to the transfiguration was to close in, to seek comfort, to try to pull Jesus with him, the story concludes with him coming off of the mountain, continuing to follow Jesus. This is the journey of transformation. N.T. Wright beautifully speaks to this process of transformation when he says this, when you see the dawn breaking, you think back to the darkness in a new way. Sin is not simply the breaking of a law, it is the missing of an opportunity. Having heard the echoes of a voice, we are called to come and meet the speaker. We are invited to be transformed by the voice itself. The word of the gospel, the word which declares that evil has been judged, that the world has been put to right, that heaven and earth are joined forever, and that the new creation has begun. We are called to become people who can speak and live and paint and sing that word so that those who have heard its echoes can come and lend a hand in the larger project. That is the opportunity that stands before us as a gift and a possibility. Christian holiness is not, as, po- as people often think, a matter of denying something good. It's about growing up and grasping something even better. May we find encouragement in the knowledge that we are given endless opportunities to hear the voice, to understand the voice, and give our lives to being transformed by the voice. The transfiguration is a disorienting and unbelievable story of a divine breakthrough. It not only allows us to see the reality of Christ, but also exposes one of humanity's greatest subtle temptations. Jesus didn't come to fit neatly in our lives, but rather disrupt our way of being and reshape us into kingdom citizens. True maturity of faith is realizing and accepting this truth. This is our unchanging call to discipleship. We first trust Christ with our lives. We open ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit and we pursue radical obedience to the teachings of Jesus. In this, we will be transformed into his image. So Newcom, let us hold fast to the voice of God in this story. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It assures us of the centrality and authority of Jesus And although there will be moments of doubt and seasons of uncertainty in the future, our hope can be grounded in a Jesus as creator and sustainer, and our work can be focused on the transformation into the image that we are called. Amen.